Uh, for those I haven't had a chance to introduce myself to yet, my name is Rob, and I'm the assistant pastor here, and this evening is going to be the first night of a summer series where we are going to walk verse by verse through the book of First Peter. And the book as a whole, I think, is very suited for us in this place at this time. Traditionally here at Calvary Chapel, we spend Wednesday evenings going through the Old Testament. And Pastor Patrick has just taken a break halfway through Isaiah. And when fall comes around, he will resume that study in Isaiah. But as me and Patrick prayed our way through what the Lord would have for this summer, the Lord put this book on our hearts. And as I got into it and cracked things open and sought the Lord, all scripture is always good and will always be applicable to us. But there are just certain things. When we talk about who Peter is writing to, which we'll get into shortly, feel especially apt towards the church today. So let's go ahead and dive right in. If we turn to the book of 1 Peter, verse 1, it says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now there we have the author and the audience of this apostle. And Peter, the Apostle Peter, has to be one of the most captivating or intriguing or interesting characters in the Gospels, at least to me. Peter's name is only mentioned more in the Gospel by then Jesus' name is the only one mentioned more than Peter's in the Gospels. So part of that draw is the fact that we have information. He's in a lot of places. He's in a lot of stories. He was one of Jesus's sort of inner three circle of disciples. Within the 70, there were 12. Within the 12, there were Peter, James, and John. Those three being witness to things that none of the other disciples were. Like Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, the healing of Jairus's daughter. And uh, they were with Christ when he was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. There certainly weren't a lot of people who got as much proximity to Jesus as Peter did. Peter's history, as we look through the Gospels, the many accounts has some of the most inspirational moments. Peter was the one who stepped out of the boat to walk on the water. Peter was the one who in John 6, 68, said these, these beautiful words, rare times where we really saw one of the disciples get it. He said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have also come to believe and know that you are the Christ, Son of the living God. Unspeakable things, things that we could not imagine to be a part of. But on the other hand, Peter kind of had a case of foot and mouth disease. 
There were many times when he was slow to think and quick to act. Peter was rebuked by Jesus more than any of the other disciples, at least that we see recorded in Scripture. On the one hand, we see Peter being intensely bold and passionate about his Savior. On the other hand, we see him deny Christ three times. Whenever the disciples are listed, Peter's name is often listed first as a leader. Yet, he cut off Malchus's ear when they came to arrest him, something Jesus corrected him for right there. I have to imagine one of the low points in Peter's life had to be when Jesus was explaining how he was going to suffer on the cross. And Peter rebuked Jesus. It said, then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. But he, Jesus, turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but of the things of men. We find that in the Gospel of Matthew. Now, Peter would make a fantastic character study. We could line these things up and we could lay them out and see a picture of a man. You see, when I look at Paul, who wrote such a majority of the New Testament, Paul just seems like he outclasses me. Far and above, I look at, yeah, well, there's that one time he said he was the chief of sinners, but, you know, the other 99.9% .9 of the time, he kind of seems like a rock star, and he's really smart, and he doesn't use a lot of commas, but, well, I'm never going to be like Paul. But sometimes when I encounter Peter in the Gospels, doing something brash, doing something foolish, running his mouth before his brain has a chance to catch up, Okay, I could do that. That could be me. And so I think it's important to have in mind who Peter was in so much as it makes him relatable to us. Peter, I think, is one of the more relatable characters in Scripture because we do have that information and we see the highs and the lows. And isn't that common to our experience? In our faith, there are times when we feel like we got it all right and we nailed it. But then there are other times when we're looking at our actions almost from an outer body piece of view, point of view and we say, I can't believe I just did that or how did I find myself in this situation? And when I see Peter, I can relate to that. But I elected not to spend one of our Wednesday evenings solely looking at Peter because although I find him relatable, we're not here to study Peter. We're here to study the God that saved Peter and the Holy Spirit that inspired Peter to write this epistle. So while I would encourage you to take time, remind yourself, refresh yourself of all the instances where Peter shows up in the Gospels.
And there are many. All the wonderful and bold things he did and all of the foolish and short-sighted things he did. But remember, it's not about Peter. I don't care if it was Joe the wandering sheep shearer who wrote this letter. If it was protected as canon and inspired by the Holy Spirit, then that means it is especially applicable to us today. We see there in verse 1, it just says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Unlike we find in many of Paul's letters where he qualifies that statement. Peter, like we said, spent so much time with Jesus and was in so many of these situations as he wrote this letter to the dispersed church. He didn't need to qualify that statement. His apostleship and his authorship of this book were never really questioned. But then we see the original audience of this letter. To the pilgrims of the dispersion, and then it lists five different Roman provinces. And these were away from the city of Rome, and that very well may have been the path that the carrier of the letter took. But Peter wasn't just writing to these five provinces. Anyone that would encounter the letter, you see, at this time, these Christians, this church, had been scattered and pushed out and dispersed as a result of Roman persecution. Rome, at the time of Peter's writing this letter, was not friendly to the gospel. And many had to flee the major city centers if they wanted to be safe, to have peace. Now, no doubt, the persecution followed them, but as they found new places, perhaps places where the persecution wasn't as severe, maybe they could see it on the horizon. It was worse in places all around them. I don't think we can relate to that in Kansas. We can, though, right? We see some of the things that believers are experiencing across the globe. We see many of the things believers are even experiencing on the coasts. And being here in the Bible Belt, we're pretty protected. We hear stories. But it's not at our doorstep like it's on their doorstep. And I think that's very similar to many of the people that Paul was originally writing to. And that sets the stage for the character of this letter. I titled this series, Hope Away From Home, because that was the through line that I felt like the Lord most had for us in this season as we look at the book of 1 Peter. Because as we'll see tonight, the only thing we're going to talk about is salvation. We're going to talk about salvation because that's the foundation of our hope. We're going to see that that salvation is not only precious and perfect and worthy because it's outside of this broken, corruptible earth. 
But that salvation, that foundation of our hope is precious because there is nothing more valuable, more influential, more useful to us today. So while at the same time, we have to acknowledge that this world that we're living in is not our home. We are not homeless. There's a difference between having no home and just not being home right now. And that's some of the many beautiful truths that Peter's going to talk about in his letter. But this evening, as we look at verses 1 through 12, he's going to make sure he lays that firm foundation of what is the basis of this hope? What is this salvation? Who are you? Who are you in Christ? Because as he writes to these believers that have been dispersed by persecution, that have been scattered because of the oppression they're facing from their government, the first thing they need is encouraged. They need encouraged, they need reminded, they need to be rooted in who it is that they are. And so then we see verse 2, which is one of the, the deepest, most beautiful verses theologically in Scripture. It reads, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. There in verse 2, we see a one-verse picture of salvation. And salvation as it relates to all three members of the Trinity. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Well, the word elect simply means chosen. You were chosen. Unless it's jury duty, we're all generally excited to be chosen for something. Our right to choose, our freedom. We get to choose where we want to live, what we want to do, how we want to spend our time. Choice is a valuable thing. And Peter opens his letter to a group of believers, Gentile believers, as we'll get into later, that might not be feeling great about their situation, about their circumstances. Or if they're not feeling great about their circumstances right now, perhaps they're worried about the circumstances that may be upon them soon. Be that a year or five or ten years down the road. And he says... You were chosen. You were elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Now we know that God is omniscient. And foreknowledge of God the Father is meaning that God knows everything that is going to happen before it happens. But that is not to imply that is not to imply that the basis of his election was simply in response to that foreknowledge. Some read this to believe that God elected those whom he foreknew would trust in a Savior. 
God elected those whom he foreknew would trust in Jesus. That honors man's responsibility. We have to put our trust in Jesus. But that violates God's sovereignty. Why did God choose Israel to be his chosen people? Because he decided to. Because he's God and he gets to make his own decisions. Because he's in control. Does that mean that Israel didn't have an opportunity response? No, not at all. It's the same with our election. We know that our salvation can only be found in Jesus. But God chose his people not merely as a result of knowing how they would react to Jesus. Because here's the other thing. God couldn't just make the decision of election based on his foreknowledge of who would choose the Savior because God should also know very well that left to himself no sinner would ever choose a Savior. Left to our own devices, unchecked, unaided, unassisted, we would be unredeemable. So, he marked certain ones to be trophies of his grace. That's the reality. That's confusing. Because God's sovereignty and man's responsibility war with one another. But scripture very teaches, very clearly teaches both. You're responsible. And God is God. No one has been able to clearly reconcile those yet, and tonight will not be that breakthrough. But here's what we do know. Because of the character of God, we know that he would not do a thing that is unjust. Whatever we understand and whatever the larger category of what we don't understand about that, we know this because of what we know of God's character. Nothing is unjust about it. Then in verse 2, we see the second member of the Trinity in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience. Now specifically here, this text is referring to our initial conversion. The Holy Spirit's role in someone initially Believing the truth, believing the gospel. We see that in 2 Thessalonians 2.13, much clearer. Let's flip there. I should have marked it. I always do this the first Wednesday. Nope, it's gone. Who took Thessalonians out of my Bible? 
Uh, it would be Clayton. <laughs> Second Thessalonians 2.13. But we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God, from the beginning, chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in truth. Now, oftentimes when we think of sanctification, we're more familiar with it as the process of becoming more and more like Christ in our Christian walk. This is specifically referencing the moment that we officially started that journey, the moment that we put the jersey on, and it says sanctification in the Spirit because it ties back to God's role in our even being saved. The Spirit of God drew us to God that we could accept God. And then we have for the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. And I have to borrow some insights from David Guzik. But there were three times in the Old Testament where the sprinkling of blood was used. The first was at the establishment of the Old Covenant. That's Exodus 24, 5 through 8. You might want to jot these down if you want to check them out. I don't think we're going to have time to read it. So the establishment of the Old Covenant between Moses and God. After he gave Moses the law, they gathered and, and then they said, All the Lord has said that we will do. Uh, we will do and be obedient. And Moses took the blood, sprinkled it on the people and said, this is the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you according to all these words. The second time we see the sprinkling of blood is at the ordination of Aaron, the priest and his sons. And you shall take some of the blood that is on the altar and some of the anointing oil and sprinkle it on Aaron and on his garments and his sons and the garments of his sons with him and he and his garments shall be hallowed and his son's garments with him. So when they were called into the priestly ministry. And finally, we saw the sprinkling of blood in the purification ceremony for a cleansed leper. So the establishment of the old covenant, the, ordina the ordination of the priests, and a purification ceremony for a cleansed leper. Let's boil that down. First, a covenant is formed, a promise, a guarantee, an agreement. Then we're ordained as priests, and finally, we're cleansed from our corruption and sin. That's exactly what happens when we come to Christ. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, a covenant, an agreement, being sealed, sanctified in the Spirit, and then through Jesus Christ, 
our sins and our corruption could be washed away. We could be made holy. Beautiful word picture that highlights the story of our salvation from before the foundation of the earth. Before any of this, before Jesus, before Adam and Eve, God knew of your salvation, of my salvation. So when we look around us at troubled times, when we feel like it's not all it's cracked up to be, don't be surprised. God's not. And Peter will get more into that. Verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to his abundant mercy, has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The only reason we can know salvation is the abundant mercy of God our Father. Were it not for mercy to start the process, there would be no other reason. We will see the other uses. We will talk about how God uses the church and our salvation is an object lesson for the angels. But believe me, God needs nothing from us. He is in need of nothing. It is only His mercy that we have to thank for the salvation that we experience. Because that was the first step that He would decide to bestow upon us that which we did not deserve. That He decided to not give us the punishment and the separation that we should have rightly deserved. That phrase, we have been begotten, one of the places where we get born again, that's the nature of our salvation. It's a new being. It's not, I was trying to explain to someone today how a salvage title works and how each specific piece of a car has a VIN number and sometimes you have to take those together but then they have to give you a new VIN number for this complete car. That's not, he's not taking the old parts and rearranging them and taking these broken things and these and putting them together to make two less broken things. And that fact is lost on us because our outward experience remains unchanged. But you are a new creation in Christ. You have been begotten again. There is a new birth. It does not matter how many children you have. You're not just recreating clones of the same. Each one is their own child, a new birth, a new creation, endless possibility and unique, perfect love that you want to pour out on that child. And that's what we find 
and our salvation. And then we have this concept of a living hope. And I love the way that F.B. Meyer put it. He said, living hope is the link between our present and our future. Living hope is the link between our present and our future. Because living is what we're doing now. But our hope is rooted in a place outside of this experience. If we place our hope in the things that we can hold and touch and see and smell, it's not going to go well for us. But I won't say it. I'll let Paul say it. Uh, not Paul, the other P guy, Peter. And he does so in verses 4 and 5. To an, inheritance, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, reserved for you in heaven, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. This is one of those times where I really just have to laugh at the task set before me. Because here, Peter, in an attempt to describe our salvation, can't even describe in words what it is. The best he can do is say what it is not. Because it's too great, it's too magnificent, it's too gigantic a thing to constrain in words. What is your inheritance? What does God have for you in heaven? The Holy Spirit won't give me the words, but I can tell you this. It's incorruptible. Unperishable would be another translation of that word I prefer. It's undefiled. There isn't a thing that's wrong or broken or dirty about it. Everything that you understand about this life, about things being defiled, broken and dirty and corrupted, all of that, it's not that. It's none of that. That's what awaits you. That's the salvation that has been purchased. It doesn't fade away. Even as believers, sometimes we can relate to that. We have what are often emotional experiences associated with our walk with Jesus. And sometimes emotions fade. They come and go. Sometimes I feel more in love with Christ on one day than the next. Sometimes I feel more in love with my wife or my children on one day than the next. So we understand how emotions fade. Even eating our, our favorite meal, if we had it every day for every meal, it probably wouldn't be quite as good as it was the first time. So we understand what it's like for something to fade away. Peter says, when you get to heaven, it's, it's going to be everything, and it will just continue to be everything. I can't describe what that's like. He was filled with the Spirit, and he just said, I can tell you what it's not going to be. It's not going to fade. It's not going to lessen. It's not going to go down. This is what is reserved 
for you in heaven. And that's sort of like a double-edged sword. It reminds me of children that would receive an inheritance, but it was under an agreement that they had to get old enough to not be stupid with all the money before they would get it. That's not the case here, but, but there's an excitement. There's a joy talking about the salvation that will be fully realized in heaven and we're impatient and we're restless. So sometimes the other side of that thought is like, ah, well, what about, what about now? <laughs> That's really nice to think about, but you know, everything else that's in front of me right now on my plate, I don't have time to just sit around and think about the glorious salvation that Peter describes. And he speaks to that. Peter does. He says in verse 6, in this you greatly rejoice. Because we should when we contemplate that salvation. And not only that salvation, but there in verse 5, we didn't touch on the fact that it is kept by the power of God through faith. I have three children, and I haven't dropped the youngest one yet. And I'm really hoping I don't. But the moral of the story is some of the things that are the most important thing to me in the world, I will make mistakes with. So I am very glad that salvation is not kept by my power, but it's kept by the power of God. Because here you gave me a baby and I let it roll off the bed. That's not funny. Greg. That's how people like us get made, man. But it's kept by the power of God. And faith is our means of accessing that. The power that he uses to keep it, to keep us. Faith is our means of accessing it. And it needs to be accessed. Because here in verse 6, it says, In this you greatly rejoice, though now... For a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. This life is full of trials. And I'm glad that Peter, being a really honest, upfront dude, put these both right next to each other. <laughs> Otherwise, I would think he was trying to sell me something. He's like, salvation is great. Okay, but I also got to talk about the trials thing. <laughs> because they're going to be there and they're going to be real. And he's going to talk more throughout his letter about what living inside of this hope and this reality means. But let's just pull a couple quick useful nuggets about what he acknowledges about trials there in verse 6. One, they're real. It exists. 
Salvation does not mean life stops being hard. Two, they're needed. They're needed. And verse 7 talks about why they're needed. But before we get there, it says, You have been grieved by various trials. A lot of times when we talk about the joy that we should find in our salvation, we feel that that means if we're being good Christians, we should never be grieved. We should never be sad. We should never be hurt. And here we can see that that's just not true. It says, if needed, you have been grieved by various trials. Because trials, they are grievous. They are painful. They hurt. They are difficult, and it's hard. And some of those are very individual. Because some of the most painful things are not part of our collective experience. They're not part of what's going on with Christianity around the world, but it has to do with that thing that only God knows, and he allows Satan to poke, to try us, to hurt us. Why? Why? Because in verse 7, that the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Trials prove our faith genuine. And Peter here compares our faith to gold. And in any pirate movie we've ever seen, what's the first thing that happens when they pick up a piece of gold? out of the treasure box. They bite it. They test it to prove that it's genuine. Because gold, if not proved to be gold, is worthless. And our faith without proven to be genuine, not to God, God knows, but to us, Trials are that we might know the strength and condition of our faith. God hasn't learned anything in a long time. We're not going to be the ones to teach it. I don't think God has ever learned anything, ever. but I can't say that like that. God does not need the trials, but it's for us that we would know the condition of our faith. And that our faith, like gold, would be heated, would be tested, would be worked over. That the impurities would be burned off. Our faith is more precious than gold in one sense because it's eternal. Gold is one of the most durable metals there is. But one day it's going to burn. There will be no more. Our faith is more precious than gold because it's eternal, but our faith is also more precious than gold because it is more useful to us today than all the gold history has ever mined. Because we have trials. We have grief. 
But Paul says that our faith, our hope, this living hope, this living hope is the source of joy inexpressible. Joy inexpressible as we continue to read. Uh, thank you. Whom having not seen you love, though now you do not see him, yet believing you rejoice with a joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. The three tenses of salvation have rung all throughout what Peter is saying. We have been saved when we first came to acknowledge what Jesus did at the cross. We are being saved as he works on us in our life here, as the genuineness of our faith is, is, is proven, is revealed, is worked on in our lives, and we will be saved. We will be fully sanctified fully glorified when this soul which has been saved is released from a broken world and broken bodies. And the complete work of Jesus' salvation, which is already done and kept by the power of God, will be revealed. It's like a, a meal almost under a cover. It's cooked. You can smell it. All the evidence is there. But the full expression, even when it's open, the full expression of, of tasting it, of living it, will not come until the revela revelation of Jesus Christ. We see this plan has been long in the works. We started by talking about how God chose you before the foundation of time. But there have been prophets and saints wondering about the salvation that God set before you for thousands of years. Verse 10, of this salvation, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully who prophesied of the grace that would come to you. Many of the Old Testament prophets that we wrote or that we read could not comprehend what they were writing when they wrote it. They, they, they wanted to know how can the Messiah glorified and the Messiah as a suffering servant, how can they coincide? How, how could this possibly be? And this isn't happening now. But 11, it says, searching water and what matter of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. To them, it was revealed that not to themselves, but to us, they were ministering the things which have now been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. God has chosen you for a thing that is both 100% done and in progress. 
those last few lines, things which angels desire to look into. Do you want to be encouraged? Because I think Peter opens this letter with this encouragement. That he says, these things which the angels desire to look into. That the church, me and you, persecuted Christians throughout history are an object lesson for God revealing his manifold wisdom to the angels. What God is doing in our lives through the church with salvation by his son Jesus Christ in the Holy Spirit is an object lesson revealing himself to the angels. Whoa! So what's our application from all that? We spent 40 minutes talking about salvation. What's What's our application? Well, there's two. One, if you're not saved, if you don't know this salvation, if you hear about this and it wars with your heart, why? Let's talk. God has made a plan to call you to himself since before you were a gleam in your mother's eye. He loves you. And he wants you to come to him. That's application number one if you don't know this salvation. And if you do know this salvation... Meditate on that. We're going to spend a lot of the rest of the summer having the Holy Spirit through Paul talk about all the, the, the wonderful implications that there are for this salvation on our life, but that foundation, the reason to listen has to be an inexpressible, overwhelming, humbling understanding of what it is God has made us a part of. That angels would look to learn at what is being worked out now in our lives. That's, that's worship, to sit and meditate on the sobering reality of how great the salvation we experience is. And that's not to think about it in the car on the way home. <laughs> that's to really stop and think about it. Think about it harder than you think about the trials that you'll experience between now and this time tomorrow. When you go home and have a family and you wake up and you have a job and you come home and you have bills and your basement's flooded. Your basement was flooded last night. But think about the amount of time we spend worrying about the realities that are wholly centered on this world 
and the joy and the firm foundation and the strength that it would come from meditating and realizing the reality of the salvation that shapes our existence. And not just for how that benefits us right now, but for how God has been authoring that since the beginning of time. Father, it was before the beginning of time that you had us in your mind. Lord, it's a daunting task to try and articulate your greatness, to explain to emphasize, to highlight God. But Lord, I just pray that your spirit within us would speak to us and show us what you're doing in our life. Father, draw our hearts and our minds to the reality of the living hope that we have. Lord, not for what that means for tomorrow, but, but just to sit under the incredibleness of what it is you have done. We thank you so much.